Playback on RTE Radio 1. Sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rate travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Oh, they were all at the FLA this week, all the greats, including Louise Duffy, who cajoled John Spillane into singing live. But first, song titles. Tell me about this song, because it's special. Well, the song is called uh, Rise Up Lovely Molly, and I wrote it myself, Louise. But what it is is that like, I do love the Irish traditional music, the jigs mm-hmm. and the reels, and I've always been fascinated by the names of the tunes. The hair's paw, scatter the mud, yeah. round the house and mind the dresser. I think that there's actually a whole language in the tunes. There is, the cat's uh, pyjamas and all that kind cat, of thing. <laughs> yeah. um, so there, there's a load of folk memory. Yeah. Um, Hush the cat from the bacon, the floating crowbar. So anyway, I wrote a song out of the index of a book called The Petri Collection of Irish Music. It's a 19th century collection of Irish tunes, 1,584 Irish melodies, wow. and the name of every one of them is absolutely brilliant. So this is um, made from the index of the book. It's called Rise Up, Lovely Mom. Well, take it away, John. Thank, Thank you. you. And away we go Some say that I'm foolish And more say I'm wise There is a small enchanted glen that I know Apples in winter Banish misfortune cold frozen night and I am covered in snow as I strayed out on one foggy morning in harvest the morning star the mountain road over high high hills and lofty mountains on a long long summer's day With my love I'll go Rise up, lovely Molly The frost is all over Banish misfortune And away we go A beautiful song from the voice of one of the best, John Spillane, live at the FLA in Mullingar with Louise Duffy. Welcome back. On Sunday, to mark the 10-year anniversary of the death of Seamus Heaney, the first in a series from John Bowman, tracing the poet's words on RTE Radio. And here we have Seamus Heaney recalling his first day of school. And while you might think he'd be racing to go, no. I do remember the first morning weeping and not wanting to go and uh, I was the eldest of our own family I was the first to leave and uh, I, I was kind of disconsolate I hated going and my father was stern I never saw my father I mean obviously <laughs> he was performing the role of paterfamilias and uh, I, I was quite quite sorrowful yes <laughs> walking away and while some things remain proof that the only constant is change, today in schools it is smartphones. And when is the right time for kids to get one? A very now dilemma. What ages are you seeing the youngest of children who have phones at? 
Uh, we're seeing um, children as, as young as four um, with their their own device, not one they're borrowing from mommy or daddy. Um, now, that's rare, but by the time they get to the about fifth or sixth class, uh, they, you would be in the minority not owning a smartphone. That is Simon Lewis, Principal of Carlo Educate Together Primary School. And he was responding to a UNESCO report calling for a global ban on smartphones in schools. Now, he told Philip that generally that is the case in primary schools. But rather than banning tech entirely, he suggests a shift in mindset. If society sort of dictates that's not actually acceptable for children to be having their faces mindlessly on a smartphone when they're sitting in a buggy or when they're sitting in a restaurant or when they're going about their everyday like that kind of stuff if we if we looked at that in the same way nearly as i mean i don't know 40 years ago if you went into a, if you were on a bus you'd have people smoking on the bus if you if someone smokes on the bus these days you know people are in uproar but that was totally acceptable a few years ago we need to look at things that we do mindlessly with smart devices and mm-hmm. sort of realize mm-hmm. that society that's just not okay, you know, and, and I think maybe we're looking, maybe that's where we are at the moment. We're, we're, we're asking that difficult question about, okay, technology is obviously incredibly important. We need to use it. Uh, it can be used for, for good. We can keep tabs on our kids when we need to. We can do, uh, children can do all sorts of amazing things using technology. But it's that mindless stuff that we're doing, the, so the dangerous stuff that we're allowing okay, to happen. So- Ooh, it is nothing if not a minefield. And on Arena, more social media, albeit in a different context. A new crime novel from Laura Lipman. Its title, Prom Mom, and it focuses on a pregnant high school teenager and it moves between the 1990s and present day. But the internet never forgets. Once upon a time, your mistakes weren't that easy to find. Um, As a young reporter in Waco, Texas in the 1980s, I made some really big boneheaded mistakes because you do as a young reporter. But it's not easy to search my name and find the clarifications and corrections that had to be issued on a couple of the stories I wrote in my 20s. And I sort of saw this happening around the time I left newspapers, which is, you know, at the beginning of this century, over 20 years ago. And I remember trying to write an article telling people to maybe rethink some of these confessional pieces they were writing because it was all going to be so accessible now. Yeah. I mean, it's it's crazy the information about us that is at everybody's fingertips. You know, how do you disappear if that's what you want? And Lipman talked about how she was now reviewing her own work in light of current thinking and, as she puts it, sensibilities. I'm wondering then uh, what kind of effect does that have when it comes to the writing of novels? Okay, they mightn't be able to search on the internet and, and find your novel, but all of your novels will exist in print. What kind of responsibility does that put on you, particularly in a novel like this, Prom Mom, where, as you've admitted, it became a very political statement, um, yes, because of the events that happened in and around uh, Roe v. Wade and the overturning of that ruling. But what kind of responsibility does that put on the on the novelist? Well, I think that's a great question and it's a big question. I'm not sure I can get to all the pieces of it. <laughs> but I will say that as someone who's been publishing since 1997... I do think about whether books I wrote earlier would offend current sensibilities. And if people want to describe that in a disparaging way as woke, Mm. 
Mm. So be it. The mere it's the mere fact is there are terms that we used in the 1990s in the aughts that are now considered offensive. I mean, you can see this really easily that there are certain racial terms that appeared in books that are now quite offensive. And so I'm sort of interested in that in general. And I've actually, I actually have an intern. There's a woman in my neighborhood who needed um, credit for her creative writing degree. And she asked me if she could work for me. And I was like, I can't pay you, but you can be my intern. And she's actually going through my first 10 to 12 years of writing and just making notes. She's annotating it. And then we're going to sit down and think about whether any of this language is harmful or insensitive. Mm. And if it is, what do we want to do about it? So right now I have all the questions about what you're asking. I don't readily have the answers. It's kind of new. Mm. There was much talk recently uh, about the the re-editing of Roald Dahl's writing because some of the terms within those children's books were potentially offensive. What was your feeling around that? Well, that was fascinating to me because that was done at the directive, as I understand mm. it, correct me if I'm wrong, that's done at the initiative of a company. That's like just pure capitalism. It's like, oh, this might offend people. Let's let's change it. I don't remember there being any outcry at a grassroots level about the doll books. Mm. Some of the language is troubling. Some of it is a little bit. I prefer, I think more contextual readings, but there are, there are really interesting arguments about that too, yeah. especially when you're talking about books read by children. Um, I just, I, you know, again, there are no really easy right answers. <laughs> no easy answers. Certainly it, it goes too far sometimes, definitely, yeah. but I, it's, it's still good to be thinking about it. Laura Lippman on her novel Prom Mom with Sean on Arena on Park Bench on Bank Holiday Monday. A seemingly straightforward question, more revealing answers. John Bella Wiley asked, who do you hang out with? No, I don't have a lot of friends at the moment because um, I only have one or two people now that I can really trust. Basically one, I'd say. And uh, probably like a lot of people, uh, as, you, as you get older, friends you had you, you kind of you, you, you really see it yourself they weren't really friends they were kind of acquaintances but then again I was reading uh, a lot and uh, uh, books and everything and they reckon the most popular person in the world really only have four or five friends so it's not very unusual just to have the one friend from Park Bench. On Tuesday, the funeral of Sinead O'Connor and Embray, her home for some 15 years, a huge crowd paid tribute to her life. And there was music, reggae, and there was singing. But for many, it was her brother Joseph's own poem, Blackbird in Dunleary, about his sister, that said so much. Liveline brought us this recording, originally broadcast on Drive Time in 2010. There's a blackbird in Dunleary when I'm walking with my sons through the laneways called the metals by the train tracks. And he sings among the dandelions and bottle tops and stones, serenading purple ivy, weary tree trunks. And I have it in my head that I can recognise his song, pick him out, I mean distinct from all his flock mates. But my sons insist it's fiction, heard one blackbird, heard them all but there are times he whistles up a recollection. There's a blackbird in Dunleary, 
And I'm suddenly a kid, asking where from here to Sandy Cove my youngest sister hid. I'm eleven this Easter, my job to mind her. Good Friday on the pier, and I suddenly can't find her. The sky like a bruise by the lighthouse wall. We were playing hide and seek. Is she lost? Did she fall? There's a blackbird in Dunleary and the terrors like a wave breaking hard on a hull. And the people's faces grave as Yates on a banknote. Stern as the mansions of Killiney in the distance as the pier's granite stanchions. And Hoth is a dead child slumped in Dublin Bay. And my heart is a drum and the breakers gull grey. The baths, it starts raining, the people's park, and my tears of cold shame, and the dog's bitter bark. There's a blackbird in Dunleary, and I pray to him then, for God isn't here, in a sobbed Amen. And she waves from the bandstand, her hair in damp strings, and the blackbird arises with a clatter of wings from the shrubs by the tea house, where old ladies dream of sailors and Kingstown and Teddy's ice cream. And we don't say a word, but cling in the mizzle, and the whistle of the bird getting lost in the drizzle. Mercy weaves her nest in the dead, wet leaves. There are stranger things in heaven than a blackbird believes. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Last month, a Belgian court convicted six men of murder and two others of terrorism charges for the 2016 bombings in Brussels that killed 32 people. David Garrahy was one of those caught up in the bombing at the airport. He sustained a relatively minor leg injury, but he told Philip about the shock and anger he felt in the aftermath of the attack. Shock and anger, I can understand. I wonder, to what extent were you hit with a sense of disbelief that you could actually be caught up in something like this? A terrorist bomb planted beside a queue of people trying to get onto a plane. It was, I mean, to tell you the truth, I, I didn't even get to feel disbelief because it just, it just happened. There wasn't even a moment where, where, where I was. Uh, it, it took me uh, about thirty minutes or so after the bombing happened, um, and I was really, you know, too close to the bomb, um, too, so close that I. I could feel the heat of the bomb in, in my face, uh, you know, at, at the airport. And, 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 and suddenly everything just changed. My world just changed. So I didn't even get a moment to not believe it because I didn't even know what was happening for, for a long time. Uh, I, I, because, because I had this kind of feeling of, 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 uh, of heat and an explosion on my face, I felt I thought it was a gas leak or a gas um, uh, explosion. Uh, it took me about an hour or yeah, I think it was about an hour afterwards when I was outside the airport. I asked someone, oh, what happened? And they said, oh, they think it's a terrorist bombing. And yeah, I guess at that stage I had this moment of disbelief and I realized how serious things were. Mm. It was also a time that they had they had they had knocked out the mobile um, phone service because the police uh, thought that the terrorists were were communicating with each other and uh, and then those helicopters and you know terrorist police in Balaclava started coming and 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 filming us 
and then I kind of realized, okay, this is, um, this is very serious. Um, and, um, yeah, then, then that, that feeling of disbelief came. And yes, there were physical scars, but it was the trauma of having been through and surviving something like that that stayed with him. I uh, sought out therapy quite quickly in order to kind of get over some of the initial um, trauma. Um, But I probably didn't do that, you know, long term you know, therapy that I needed to do um, to to deal with the consequences until about a year or two afterwards. Um, but that was an immense help. Um, it it uh, also talking with family about it, talking with friends about it, um, kind of accepting it as well. Um, in as you know that I am somebody that has lived through this. Um, it doesn't. It is never going to leave me, um, but it is something that gives me, you know, some, uh, it has changed me um, and and that has good and bad points, but accepting it was, took it took a few years for me to actually accept it. And this was how he described his attitude to his attackers. What are your feelings towards the bombers and their fellow travellers and supporters now? Do you think about them much? Um, I I don't think about them much to tell you the truth. Um I haven't um um I I've never wanted or never let them rule my life or rule my decisions. I, I live in and, and work in Brussels. It's a wonderful place. I continue to, to fly and go through airports. I always felt from quite soon afterwards that I wasn't going to 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 let them dictate who I was, or 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 to let to let me feel any hatred towards them or to the world, because I think in the end we can't let people like that, whose only aim is to to sow hatred and division, we can't let them win. Um, I, I think you know, in order for us to stop things like this from happening, we have to be open. Uh, we have to be tolerant and we have to, you know, be generous to other people, especially those who, who might be facing adversity and, and or, or might be isolated from society. Um, that's the way to, 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 to create, like, you know, places where, where these kind of attacks don't mm. happen. The quietly remarkable David Garrahy with Philip. On Sunday, a second All-Ireland clash between Kerry and Dublin. This time it's the women's football final in Crow Park. For Morning Ireland, Jonah Sullivan went to both camps. It's really cool because like, being part of Nafina and then people that are actually in the final feels like really special. And what do you think is going to happen? I, um, I think Dublin are going to win because, I don't know, I just feel like they're better. I think that Dublin are definitely going to win by like five points or something. Not so, say these kids from the West Kerry Gaeltacht. I'm going to give you a little bit Brandon Martin and Jack Damala. I'm going to give you a little bit of Doyle or Rodega Nernos. Yeah. I'm going to give you a little bit of a cup of Tis all to play for. 
Now, if you were listening hard, you would have heard lots of life hacks on the radio this week. Little tips to help you live your very best life. The pressure, you'd need to lie down. But we will make this painless. So, if you're obsessed about getting your 10,000 steps in, relax, mon ami. According to the Medical University of Lotz in Poland and John Hopkins University, 4,000, it'll do you just fine. Lead author, Professor Maciej Barak, spoke to Justin McCarthy on the News at One. Very important, taking into account the heart health and the cardiovascular mortality. And for example, for the number of steps uh, of about uh, 3,982, it was already 16% reduction of, of cardiovascular mortality. So it is so important to start early, even with the lower number of steps, and then try to increase this uh, steps number, because we also notice that if we increase uh, every, in fact, increase uh, of the number of steps per day by 1,000 for all-cause mortality and uh, 500 uh, for cardiovascular mortality might be associated with the reduction of the mortality by 7 to 15 percent. So it is so important to start early, to be regular and to try to increase the number of steps. Yes, more better, but hey, any movement good. And this week in the 9am slot, Brendan Courtney, yes, musical chairs do keep up. And he was on the act of travel, cycling to work he was. I'm buzzed up. I'm buzzed up. I'm stood here a different man. If you've been listening during the week, I've been boring you with the details of I actually incidentally slightly dinted my partner's car and as a result he won't let me drive it anymore. So... I've taken buses, I've taken aeroplanes, I've done, so I, I, I eventually sorted myself out and I got a bicycle. Just picture it. I, <laughs> a pathetic silhouette of a man stood in the doorway of my bedroom this morning uh, with Adam sort of one eye open looking at me and I was like, okay, and I had my cycle helmet on so I probably looked like a giant toddler. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm off now. I'm going to cycle. Hoping the offer of the keys of the car would come forth and they didn't. And I cycled and I made it and even stopped for a coffee on the way and wave to some squirrels. Oh, but this little story will become relevant later because joining Brendan, Dr Mark Rowe, who describes himself as a lifestyle GP. Explain. Well, lifestyle medicine is this really new old idea of prevention better than cure, of less pills. Modern medicine can be fantastic. Of course we need antibiotics for meningitis or pneumonia. Of course we need blood thinners for, for clots and medicine can be fantastic. But it's not the only answer and we need to bring in all of these other ideas for which there's a a huge evidence base. It's a new global movement because increasingly people are are recognising that we need more than simply the pill for every ill. We need to move beyond that and we can look at how we can prevent many of these chronic health conditions like type 2 diabetes and heart disease. We now know that positive lifestyle changes can prevent perhaps up to 80% or more of of cases of heart disease. And lifestyle medicine is really all about the six pillars, food as medicine, restorative sleep, exercise and movement, recharging from stress, avoiding obviously noxious substances and perhaps most importantly of all, building rich restorative relationships. And one of the ways to keep fit and healthy, lift weights. There's a saying I use, be stronger to live longer, but really it's a blind spot for so many of us. It is, yeah. Because we kind of equate strength training with the rugby players or the the people that are really into the gym. 
but actually from our 40s onwards, Brendan, we are losing lean muscle mass, maybe 7 to 10% each decade. I, I've heard this before, terrifying. And Go that on. can weaken your bones as well, which is really important for women, particularly uh, when they get into their 50s and so on. Uh, being stronger, uh, you know, strengthens your bones, reverses that muscle loss you can get. So that builds your posture, your balance, boosts your metabolism. It's massively good. I mean, I was reading recently about this woman in Sydney. She's 97 years of age. She still lives on her own, does her own shopping, her own cooking. And she was being interviewed and she really put it down to her, her strength habit. But let's not forget about that bike. You cycled to work this morning. Oh, you're listening. That's, that's fantastic. Thank you're you. You're getting exercise. I'm very pleased. <laughs> exercise is medicine. Movement is medicine. Two wheels always good. But the importance of relationships cannot be underestimated. Friendships, family, community. Because loneliness can kill. The Harvard study of adult development, a brilliant ongoing study since the 1930s, has shown that the leading indicator of long-term well-being for us, Brendan, is the quality of our interpersonal relationships. Really? And particularly since COVID. You know, I think the real pandemic has been the pandemic of loneliness and disconnection and isolation that I've seen with so many people, not just yeah. our elderly, but, but young people as well, have never felt more disconnected in the world, despite all the social media, they've never felt more isolated. You know, having a strong sense of purpose in, um, in, in Japan, in Okinawa, they have a term called ikigai. And ikigai is that sense of inner purpose, knowing that who you are and what you do matters, that you're making a difference. His solution, get out there, join a club, any club and get chatting. That is Dr. Mark Rowe with Brendan. And with the other Brendan, O'Connor this time, more chats, gossip. But this time, the benefits of gossip, not the mean girls kind. But more like you will never guess what I heard. What is the story? Are you serious? The back channels and newsy bits of the office, your friend circle, even celebs. All those little communications that make us human. Joining Brendan, Trinity neuroscientist and author of Talking Heads, The New Science of How Conversation Shapes Our Worlds, Shane O'Mara. I was interested that you think gossip is a good thing. You quote someone in the book saying, without gossip, there'd be no society. So explain how gossip is what you call a pro-social thing. Yeah, so gossip uh, has a bad name uh, and we t- we think of gossip in, you know, on, in the newspapers or whatever about people. And that's kind of what we should think of as malign gossip. But there's also benign gossip. Uh, you know, imagine yourself coming into work in a new organisation. There's the formal rule book and you can read that. Or you can talk to the people around you and you can find out quickly who somebody you can trust, who somebody you can go to to get a favour done, how do you get your new ID card. You can work through all the, the kind of explicit rules or you can take these shortcuts. And we do this all the time in conversation with each other. Uh, we try to find out who's good, who's bad, all of those kinds of things. Yeah. But it gets even more subtle than that. Um, gossip actually can play a really important role in terms of how we regulate our own behaviour. Because if we think other people are going to talk about us, well, of course, what we want to do is not have people talk about it in a bad way. So uh, we self-regulate because we know being seen as untrustworthy, being seen as a liar, is a, a pathway to exclusion in our hyper-social world, as we've already mentioned. And and gossips, you would say, can actually be, <clears throat> they can be well-regarded. They can be people with a lot of social capital. 
In fact, that's probably the best way of thinking about it. Is gossips are central to social networks. They have access to lots of information that other people don't have. They kind of think of them as information yes. brokers. The guy sitting in the corner of the pub or whatever who hears lots of stuff and passes on <laughs> yeah, lots yeah, of yeah. stories. Somebody yeah. like that's really interesting to be around because you can learn surprising things from them. And if you are going to be a successful gossip, tell me more, you will need to develop rapport. Yeah, so rapport is a concept uh, that it, it's kind of uh, has, comes up in a whole variety of areas. One way of thinking about it is uh, somebody having a good bedside manner. Um, you know, clinical physicians will say what you need to do is to be able to listen as hard as you can. So somebody who's got good rapport is somebody who's truly interested in what the person is saying. They show them respect during the course of the conversation. They don't sit there waiting for the entry point into the conversation where they can rebut what the person is is saying. Instead, what they're doing is they're spending time engaging in active and attentive listening. And that's a hard skill because we want to tell our stuff. Listening to other people is an important thing too. You might learn something from them. Shane O'Mara with Brendan. And yes, you might well learn from other people, but it is also true to say that other people might well drive you nuts. Arguments rouse fighting, also part of it. And rather than going at it like a bull at a gate, maybe consider writing it down. With John Cook on Drive Time, psychologist Alison Keating, and she advises go old school, pen and paper. It's such a sensory experience, you know, when you're holding a pen, you're holding it in your hand, you're seeing the words you're actually writing out and you're hearing it because you're reading it inside your head. Um, And I often say to people, look, write it like a first draft. And the nice thing about this is it's very safe. So say you're upset with somebody and you've had an argument, it just gives you a bit of psychological distance to kind of move from being, you know, highly reactive and going back and giving out to them to actually processing how you actually feel why you actually feel that way. Um, and I have to say to people, like, when you write it out, first of all, it might be completely illegible. It might not be full of, it might be full of curse words. And it's just you getting out the feelings onto paper. So you can actually identify, oh, that's why it annoyed me so much, or that's why I'm upset. And then you can actually do something about it. I think what's always interesting is people will say to me, I actually was really surprised about what it was really about. Like, even they are surprised. So you kind of have the answer yourself. But it's actually that giving yourself that kind of uninterrupted time to kind of work through what's actually going on here. How do I feel about this? What can I actually do about it next? And then doing that. And finally, Kira King in for Ray with Samantha Rawson and how to stop the dog from barking. Okay, so you've got to look at the motivation. Is it fear-based barking or is it attention-seeking barking? Has he been tried to dissuade from barking by giving a treat? Sometimes labbies learn very quickly that if I'm naughty, you'll try and shut me up with food. And then they obviously bark to get the food. So I would probably either scatter food on the ground, so I'm not hand-feeding the dog, I'm just putting it on the ground. Or with labbies, if they're into a ball, give the dog a toy. Because if a dog is holding something in its mouth, obviously it can't bark. It's not going to bark. And I would do that before people arrive. So try and change the association between people arriving and barking. Have the dog busy before the people arrive. Mm -hmm. Because it must be so frustrating for people as well. Like if you're living in apartment blocks or houses or to have a dog barking and, you know, you hear that voice being like, would you stop? Would you stop? So it's frustrating for the owners and obviously the people that are listening to it too. But it's also a very easy command to teach. So if you teach the quiet command, so all you do is let the dog bark, put it, put that on a cue, so speak. 
and then when you tell it to be quiet throw it a ball or give it food and as it's holding the ball or eating the food you just say quiet Okay. Um, but it has to be done in like a split second so you give the dog a ball quiet and then it very qu- quickly learns oh quiet means shut up and I'll get a ball I'll or get a treat yeah okay well lesson in there for us all somewhere well that is it from this week's playback thank you for listening talk to you next week Just need to find